If you have Bibles, you can turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. If not, I invite you to take one of the few Bibles in front of you and turn with me. Uh, Matthew 13, again, the first book in the New Testament. I'm going to look at a parable of Christ this morning. Jesus uh, in in Matthew, Matthew records for us the, the focus that Jesus had on the kingdom of God. He starts in his book towards the beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, which describes for us what the character of a disciple, the character of a child of the kingdom is supposed to be like. He describes it for us. And then he, he goes through and shows us what the kingdom looks like as we watch Jesus, uh, his actions on a day-to-day basis. And then in the story that we'll look at today, Jesus is speaking to crowds and he's speaking in parables. And even as he speaks, some will, will hear and understand and respond and others will, will have the blinders on and won't understand and will, will turn away. And we'll see him move in the passage that we look at today as we read it from a, uh, speaking to the crowds in, in parables and in, 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 in terms that are, are general and then moving even from there to the crowds inside of a house to the disciples where he, he goes a little bit more intimate, a little bit deeper and describes for them the details of what he's talking about, uh, about this, this kingdom, what it looks like to be a follower. Let me start in verse 24 of chapter 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray one more time for us. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you don't leave us to guess and to put our own expectations on, on this world. But you fill the picture out for us. You show us what to expect, what to look for, and what to hope in. And we pray this morning as we study your word, you'd help us more and more to place our hope in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, as many of you will remember that are Georgia fans, Georgia played South Carolina. It was not a pretty day. And there's not a whole lot that's worth remembering about that day and about that game, except for one thing that I saw after the fact that happened actually before the game even started. And it was a story about a family that was celebrated in the middle of the field. I think it was before the game, pregame. And it was the, a mom and a son and a daughter of a soldier that was over serving in Afghanistan. And they were honoring this family for the sacrifices that they had made so that their husband and father could serve uh, overseas. And they surprised them there in the middle of the field with a video of him telling them and thanking them for their sacrifices. And he uh, spoke to them, each one, and said, Kids, I thank you for being willing to be uprooted from place to place and move wherever the duty called and having to start over and you know, make new friends in every place that we moved to. And he went to the wife, thank you for all the sacrifices that you've made, you know, putting the kids to bed at night alone and all these kind of things that she had done over the years of, of him being gone. And then you know, everybody's crying, the fans are all in, in, into it, the family's crying, the cheerleaders are crying, you know, uh, everybody's caught up in this moment. And at the end of the, the, the video, he says, but don't worry, I'm coming home soon. And at that point... Out of the tunnel, across the field, out he walks. And the, the fans, you know, stand on their feet and everybody starts cheering. And the family takes off and Mama is beating the kids across the field as she sprints to embrace her husband. And the kids come and, and join her. And there's this great reunion, this great hug and embrace of, of one that they love and know so well, so deeply, reunited. Uh, and finally, all is made right. All that they've longed for, all that they've hoped for, is consummated here in this one moment. I couldn't help um, watching this as I did over and over and, and wiping away the tears and just thinking, what a sweet picture this is, humanly speaking. But what a representation it is for those of us that know the Lord Jesus of what it's going to be like when He returns and to have us as His family Run and embrace and embrace not just him, but the completion of the restoration that he's promised. And another thing struck me as I sat there watching this, this reunion happen on this field, um, even if they were South Carolina fans. I was, uh, I was overjoyed as the fans were of what happened, but I, I was left with a little bit of, of saying, you know, as, as, as great as it is and as much as I appreciate it, I can only appreciate it so far. Because I'm not part of the family. I haven't gone through this sacrifice. I haven't been through the struggles that they've been through. So it's so much sweeter for them because they're family. And they get to go and now enter into the joy of him being home for the days and years hopefully to come. The disciples 
come to Jesus into the house and they say, Jesus, you just talked about what the kingdom is going to be like and we don't quite get it. We know that you've come, but we're expecting now that you've come. We've been waiting for this a long time. We've expected now that you've come, you're going to rule. Things are going to be made right. Everything's going to recognize your rule once and for all. And yet you're also telling us that you're going to go and, and die. That you're going to go away and you're, we're going to be left without you and you're coming back. We, we don't understand. Jesus, tell us. So he sits down to tell these ones that he, he loves and that know him, that he knows what to expect this kingdom to be like and what to look for as he returns. So as we look at this passage, I want us to see three things. I want us to look at first our king, and secondly, the kingdom, and then finally we'll look at our call, at the call that it makes on us. We start with the king. What do we learn from this parable about our king? Well, first of all, we see that our king is supremely confident and patient. He is confident and patient. Why? Well, he's confident and patient First and foremost, because he knows that the seed that he's sown is good. It will produce fruit. It is good seed. He says it over and over. The servants come to him and they don't say, hey, Jesus, we think you might have made a mistake. We think you might have gone to that place and bought that seed that, you know, that is, is, is kind of mixed. No, they come to him and they say, owner, master of the house, didn't you sow good seed? In other words, we know that you sow good seed. So why is there weeds? It's a, it's a, a question that, that already knows the answer, that assumes the answer. Of course you sowed good seed. And he says, yes, the seed is good, and the seed is the sons of the kingdom that will bear fruit, that will follow after me and, and bear fruit. Now that may not seem to you as something that's out of the ordinary, but I think in practice it is. How many of us really and truly believe that we're good seed and that we're going to bear fruit and that it can, it's guaranteed, it can be counted on? If you look at the statistics of those that study um, what a non-Christian's response would be to those that were invited to church by Christians, overwhelmingly, the numbers say that all they're waiting is to be asked and invited and that they will come. That they long for a Christian to sit down with them, uh, maybe not first of all in church, maybe first of all in my favorite place, in Starbucks, to say, hey, let's talk about some of these things that I have questions about. I wish somebody would sit and help me understand this Bible that seems so foreign to me. But there's, there's, there's a, an expectation of response. That's the perspective of the owner of the field. That the seed is good and that it will bear fruit versus our tendency to be uncertain, to be timid, to think that if we share this, we're just going to get shut down. But he knows not only that the seed is good, but he has confidence and patience because the field is his. The field is his. He's not an intruder. He's not a renter. He owns the field. One of the reasons he doesn't get shaken when he sees that the enemy has sown bad seed and there's weeds that are starting to grow up is because he says, hey, the field is mine. I'll do with it what I want to do with it. I know where things are headed. And, and I know that even though uh, bad seed has been sown, 
Fruit will come. It's my field. I own it. And then thirdly, not only the seed is good and the field is his, but the power is his. They say knowledge is power. What does the owner know that gives him such calm and such confidence amidst such a dire situation? Well, it says he knows at least two things. First of all, he knows the enemy. When they come and say, what's happened? Who has done this? He knows exactly the answer. He says, I I know who did this. It's the enemy. The enemy. And I know him. I know his schemes. I know what he's up to. I know how he practices. And that knowledge is power. Because I know how he can be defeated. But not only do I know the enemy, he says, I know the end result. It's my field. I own it. I know what's going to be the end result. At the end, when it all comes up and it bears fruit, this is what we'll do. We'll come and the harvesters will come and they'll separate. That which knows and is loyal to me. And those, sadly, that don't. And that have sown wickedness. And they'll be gathered up and and their end is certain. But so also is certain the end of the wheat. They'll shine like the stars. The righteousness will be shown forth. This king, this owner, is confident. He's patient. No, don't go root up. Just wait. Just be patient. What wouldn't you give to have that kind of confidence and patience? When we look out at the world around us, not to just be reactionary, not to throw our hands up in in fear and in, in just confusion. What do we do? But to have the calm and confidence that looks out and says, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Still, if the question comes, if Jesus, if you're the king, why not go ahead and finish the deal? Why wait? Well, if we truly believe and know the king, then we're going to believe and follow what he tells us about his kingdom. And that's the second thing that we see here. He tells us what to expect, what his kingdom is like. He says, first of all, in my kingdom, judgment will ultimately be delayed. That's hard for us to to take and to grasp, but judgment will ultimately be delayed. There is a a form of judgment that's spoken of in Romans 1 where, where God says he gives people over to their sin. And that is a horrible judgment. To be given over, to have the hand of God removed from you and say, okay, take this and follow it to its end. Because that means destruction. But ultimately, the judgment spoken of here that he's, he's talking about is, is, is future judgment. It's a judgment that will be fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. The language here is too horrible for me to adequately describe. Unquenchable fire. Weeping over what's been lost and, and, and gnashing your teeth. Still in the midst of all of it, being angry... And the one who did so much on your behalf. The one that you should rightfully respect and follow. Still that, that anger towards them. Is a horrible end for those that are apart from Christ. But that judgment will be delayed, it says. Secondly, he says the kingdom. The reason he delays, the, the main reason he waits is because of his care for us. The servants come. What do they want to do? 
They want to do what we so often want to do. When we see problem, when we see wickedness in our midst or in our, in our, our city or our country, we want to go root it out. God, God, just let us go take care of this. We think we know what's right. We, we think we can kind of go above the line and see some things from your perspective. Let us go, go, go take care of it. He says, no, no, no. Don't do that. The roots are intertwined. If you go trying to pull up what you think is every source of wickedness and every person that's wicked, you're going to yank up and pull up some wheat. I've really worked through and thought through what does that mean for us. And I can see it at work inside the church in cases of church discipline. If any of you have ever been involved in a case of church discipline, or you've seen it or you've been affected by it, you know that it is never pretty. It's needed, but it's never pretty. Even when cases are crystal clear of someone being in open rebellion and needing the church to get involved for the care of their own souls... Those that may be wheat end up unintentionally sometimes being rooted up because they don't understand, they don't have the full perspective, and and they're just hurt by it. So if that's the case inside the church, how much more so outside the church do we, if we think we've got it figured out and we think we can be the judge and go out there and rid the world of wickedness, how much harm could we cause? These are some ways that I could see it happen. In the past, any time the church has thought it had it all figured out, thought it had all wisdom, and they knew right and wrong, it could go weed out what's wrong, it made us into monsters. That's what things like the Crusades were all about. But on the other hand, I, th- I think part of what Jesus is keeping us from and not revealing all things to us yet is that the weight of it, the weight of knowing such, a, such knowledge would crush us. We, thankfully, don't have markings on our heads that say wheat or weed. We believe in election. The Bible teaches it that, that Jesus has appointed some to eternal life. But we don't know who they are. The, the, the servants that are coming here, they see the, the grain and, and the weed starting to sprout up, but they can't tell yet fully what's what. And, and the owner says, wait. Wait, wait till it bears full fruit. All will be made known, and then all will be made right. But thirdly, and I think this is where it gets at the most in this parable, is that our growth actually comes a lot of times by struggle and by giving ourselves for others. How much is the wheat going to be made that much stronger because of having to struggle for sunlight, because I have to, to wrestle for the, the nutrients in the, of the soil? It's going to be that much stronger. That roots are going to be that much deeper. And the same is true for us. But also, I, I used to separate evangelism and discipleship. I thought we, we could get ourselves into a room and just learn all that needed to be learned and get equipped in all the techniques and everything else. Then we could go out there and evangelize and share the good news with, with the lost world out there. But what I learned is that evangelism and discipleship are, are intertwined. By Part of me growing up in the Lord and being discipled is by being out there giving of myself. I grow personally as I share the gospel. I gain a vision for God's kingdom and what, we can, what He can do is I practice it out there in a world that includes wickedness, includes weeds. So part of it is the owner saying, wait, 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 your growth is intertwined in this. 
And by me allowing the weeds to grow up, you're going to be, in a strange way, a beneficiary. You're going to be stronger. So judgment will ultimately be delayed. His care for us is the main reason that he waits. And thirdly, the third thing we learn about the kingdom is that it is progressing. We are sowing and growing even though we're an imperfect mix of wheat and weeds. And so we can expect fruit, but not necessarily security. We can expect opportunity to serve, but not necessarily the opportunity to be free from inconvenience. We can expect the kingdom to be coming, but not that the kingdom is yet complete. What do you expect? When I came to know the Lord in college, I had always heard in the church that once you get Jesus, everything just, just is all right from there on. And I believed it. And when I finally trusted Jesus, when I understood my own sin and gave my life to him, it was great for a few weeks. And then I realized, wait a second, there's still sin in my own life. There's still sin in the world around me. This is hard. This Christian life thing is hard. What's going on here? It doesn't make sense. Jesus is calm. Shouldn't it be all better now? And then I understood, wait a second, the kingdom's progressing in my own life and heart and in the world around me. I can expect fruit, but I can't expect everything to be perfect and security to be now. That's to come when he comes back and makes all things new. So instead of having a defensive posture that the judges were to have an offensive posture that looks into the future and sees a field full of wheat, um, full of optimism, hope, confidence, patience. Did you, did you catch that that's, those, that's what the parable about that's in between the, the telling and the explanation of this parable? In between this parable is this, these two little mini parables that's about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed. That is so small, but yet when it grows, it's extensive. It's huge. It's, it's the biggest tree in the garden, and birds come to nest in it. It's so much bigger than you would have imagined. And it's intensive. It's like leaven that gets all throughout the whole lump of dough. It, it, it goes deep, and, and, and um, it's deep and wide. It's so much bigger than you can imagine. So he's saying, hey, this kingdom is going to progress. But it's going to progress. <laughs> So have hope, have confidence, have patience, just like your king does. Then the question becomes, how in the world do you do that? If I truly believe that my king is patient and confident because of all that he knows and all that he is, and that I'm called to be that even amidst a a kingdom that is is already and not yet, that is growing up with, with weeds and wheat all mixed together, how do I even begin to do that? Well, there's, there's a couple answers that tend to be given. One is the one that you'll, you'll most hear alone in most churches today, and that's, hey, follow Christ's example. Ask what would Jesus do and then go do it. And there's some truth to that. But that admonition is crushing if it's not undergirded by another biblical truth called union with Christ. We need not only the example of Christ, we need to be united with Christ. And that principle says, not just ask what would Jesus do and go do it, but ask what Jesus has done and then build your life on that. Realize who Jesus is and that you've been united to him. And then go forth in his power and his strength and not on your own. Listen to what Colossians says. Therefore, if you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the earned circumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You can think about it like this. Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross. He lived the perfect life that we can't live. He died on the cross taking the punishment that we deserve and offering us his perfect life. And he, he accomplished it decisively. He took all that sin could throw at him, including ultimately death, and then he conquered it by rising from the dead. And what happens with us is, Holy Spirit comes to our hard hearts and it regenerates them. And as we reach out with the hand of faith and grasp hold of what Jesus has done, we are united to him. He grabs a hold of us and we grab back a hold of him because of what he's done for us. And then we start to live the Christian life. And we say, this is great, but I also need security. If I can just get financial security, if I can just get my house in order, then, then I'll have everything. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't work. Grab hold of me. And he says, this feels good. Yes, this is right. But if I can just get my family, my kids in the right school, in the right place, and then that, that'll, that'll be ultimate security. No, Jesus says, have hold of me. And so just as it's a one-time union, it's also an ongoing realization of that union, that he's got a hold of me, and a giving up of the things of the world that don't satisfy, and a, a, a re-grabbing hold of him. He never lets go. And he calls us to realize, you're united to me now. Go forth, not in your own strength, but in my strength. So the call of a passage like this that tells us about the kingdom is to look out at the world and see it for what it is, broken, evil, uncertain, and then to not run away from it, but to run headlong into it. To not fight for security, but to fight for for freedom, for those that you see in bondage to sin. To not insulate yourselves and declare what, just what you're against, but to engage and champion what you're for. Why? Because that's what the king does. Patiently, calmly, and confidently marching forth to see his blessing come as far as the curse is found. Is that too hard? Yeah, it is if we're resting in our own strengths. But not if we're united to the one who has done this, who's died and was raised. As Timothy says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, 
but of power and love and self-control. Our king is calm and confident. The kingdom is already, but it's not yet. It's growing up with wheat and weeds, and there's a a lot to navigate between now and, and the time when Jesus comes back. But brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, not just if you have thought the right things and you've learned the right truths in your head, but if you have rested in Him, trusted in Him, given Him the ownership of your life and said, you are my King, then you've been united to Him. So the cause to go forth in His strength to see the things that He's called us to actually take place, knowing that He's coming back to complete the work that He started. Nathan's playing soccer in the Viking Soccer League right now. And I don't know if it's planned or not, but every team has a, a champion. He's got one guy on there at least that's a little bit head and shoulders above everybody else on the team. Nathan is not that guy. Um, he loves it, and he, uh, he, he loves playing. But he loves the fact that he's got a champion on his team, that he's got one guy that scores most of the goals and that is really good. And when that guy scores a goal, man, it's we scored a goal. And it's hugs all around and it's jumping up and down. And it's when they win the game, it's, they're 2-0. And, and when they win the game, it's we won the game. Look at what we did. Uh, this is great. He's giving him boldness and confidence to, to, and excitement to go play soccer, even though he's never played in his life and he's just learning. Because of this guy that's good, that's a champion in his team. We're all looking for a champion right now. Right? Well, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus Christ, you have a champion who has accomplished the victory, and it is sure. And he's united himself to you. If the Spirit has has regenerated your heart, if you've taken what you know about Jesus and placed your trust in it and reached out with the hand of faith and said, I trust in you and your merits, not in my own. And he's your champion. And you can go forward in a world that's uncertain, that's evil, that's confusing, with confidence. Because he owns it. He owns it. And his kingdom is coming. More and more. His will is being done a little bit more today as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, make us more and more into a people that believe this, not with our, not just with our heads, but with our hearts and our lives. Jesus, help us to let go of seeking security and other things that, that ultimately we can't accomplish for ourselves, but that you've accomplished for us. Help us to let go of those things and grab hold of you, knowing that the end is sure and that the King is coming. We long for that day. In the meantime, help us to be about the things you've called us to, seeing your kingdom come a little bit more, your will be done a little bit more on earth today as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.